0: We are uh, really pleased to be back from our trip to uh, Florida to celebrate a 92nd birthday with my father. It was a great blessing. And uh, he's getting along really, really well. Amazingly so. Even had a bunch of projects for me to work on while I was there because <laughs> he's always thinking. He's an engineer and uh, always thinking. And uh, the rest of the family can testify to that. And if you want to know how to fix baseball, he knows how to do it. He just can't get anybody to listen to him. And uh, he's got all the charts and diagrams to get all the batters hitting the ball better because he's a fan of the Rays, and they're struggling a little bit. But we're going to start with the word of prayer this morning, and we're going to start with a new study today from First John. Well, hopefully you've already uh, kind of opened up to that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, what you're doing Uh, within our lives. Thank you for the blessing that our family had to be able to see my dad and be with him for his birthday. Thank you for uh, being with Prosper as he uh, preached the message last week and reminded uh, the congregation the commission that you gave us to preach the gospel and to make disciples everywhere and continue discipling those people in your word and in your ways. I pray today that our hearts would be open to you. I pray for me especially, um, Lord, that I would not get in the way of this message, but that you would be able to speak uh, through this vessel and uh, be able to say clearly what you want to say today. Maybe even in spite of me, Lord. And uh, Just, uh, I count on that today, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would use this time in a way that would help each of us to draw close to you and to be challenged and uh, even confronted in whatever ways uh, you choose to do that today. Bless us in Jesus' name, amen. If you're a Christian this morning, let me ask you a question. Where were you, what were you doing when Jesus confronted you, when Jesus called you to be his disciple? What were you doing? What was going on in your life? Now, Matthew was at a tax collector's booth overcharging people. Zacchaeus was doing the same in just a different town. Same thing. They're just lining their own pockets, doing all this stuff, you know, that's really against the law as Jews. They're serving the Romans, and Jesus met them. Both of them were super wealthy by comparison to their neighbors, but they hardly had a friend in the world. And then Jesus came into their lives. And as they say, the rest is history. Next thing you know, Zacchaeus was returning four times what he took from the people whom he had robbed. Next thing you know, Matthew's following Jesus across the Judean hillside. Next thing you know, what happened to you when you met Jesus? How did it change your life? Did he ask more of you than perhaps you ever asked of yourself? Did he challenge you in some of the things that have become your habits and poor behavior. (laughs) That's what he usually does. He usually is kind of confrontational, but yet very loving, and always seems like he knows what's best for us. Did you know that this is what he wants to do in everybody's life? Did you know that every person you've ever met, every person in your family, every person that you work with, every person you go to school with, every person in your block maybe an apartment complex you're living in, every single person, that's what he wants to do in their life. And that's why he's made us his witnesses. Because while we're spread all over the community, his witness is being spread. We are to be his witnesses to our families, to our friends, to our towns, to our world. And we are to bear witness to what Jesus has done in our lives. We are to tell his story. We are to show his love to everyone, red and yellow, black and white, as the kids sing in their little Bible song. I mean, everybody is on Jesus' list, his list of invitation. Male and female, young and old, atheists, agnostics, Bible believers, athletes, nerds, straight and gay, executives, blue collars, pillars and prostitutes, and moms and drug addicts, Everybody's on Jesus' list, aren't they? There's no exceptions. And he wants them all to come home. And so what stands between that happening and them coming home is often us. We are the witnesses. And so this morning we're going to begin a new study of the letters of John. And I want to kind of take a particular angle to this study. And you'll see in the title there that we are witnesses... In the world. This is a very big word, this word witness, for John, both in his gospel and in these letters. And so, kind of spinning off of that, I want us to think through this letter together over the next few weeks. John was the youngest of Jesus' twelve disciples. He was a younger brother of James. They were both sons of Zebedee, a Jewish fisherman. Can anyone tell me the nickname that Jesus gave these two brothers? Sons of Thunder. Why is that? I had a hot temper, you know. Any of you have a hot temper? Anybody willing to admit it? Am I going to make you mad if I ask you to raise your hand? <laughs> yeah, these, these are hot-headed guys. And so he named nicknames the Sons of Thunder. And they were fishermen, but they became disciples, short order. Um, John also wrote one of our four Gospels, as I mentioned, and also the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the last book of the Bible. And in his gospel about Jesus, John gives himself a nickname, doesn't he? What does he call himself in that gospel? Anybody know? The disciple that Jesus loved. The one that Jesus loved. He felt this love. I I imagine all of them could have said the same thing. But John's writing and he says, I'm the one he loved. (laughs) You ever feel that way? You ever feel the love of God so powerfully in your life? I hope you do. Because it's there, he's offering it to you today. Well, John had grown up. He had served Jesus for about 60 years of his life now. He'd been a very young man when he came to Christ, but now he's a very old man. He's probably approaching 90 years old. He's the last of the apostles still alive. Everyone else, he keeps hearing these stories. Yeah, he was beheaded. He was crucified. You know, he, he was this or that, and they've all died in one way or another. And John is left. And now he's exiled to an island called Patmos out in the Mediterranean. And he's kept out there from doing what he would normally like to do. He'd love to be visiting churches. He'd love to be starting churches. He'd love to be telling people about the Lord. And he's left in exile there. And so he writes and he writes and he writes the Gospel of John, the letters of John, the book of Revelation after he receives the revelation from the Holy Spirit. He wrote these letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, late in life. Late in the 1st century A.D. Maybe 89, 90 A.D. And why did he write these letters? What was his purpose? What was on his heart? What was on his mind as he was writing? He wrote them because he saw problems in the churches that he knew directly about. Person, personal awareness of churches that are that are leaving the path. That are struggling with their witness. Some had actually abandoned the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he wanted to get them back to the truth, back to the mission that they had been called to. He wrote them because he was a witness of the good news that is in Christ. He wrote them because they were a witness of the good news that was in Christ. But they were failing to impact their world with this gospel message, with this good news. Do you think there might be something He could say to the church today, where we have failed many times to impact our world for Christ as we are supposed to. We too are witnesses to the word of life, Jesus, the Son of God. But how can we testify to our faith in Jesus in such a sin sick, messed up world as we live in? All you have to do is turn on the news. All you have to do is look for a few seconds at the internet and see what's going on in the world and listen. To the radio. What difference can our testimony make in such a world? What must we say? How should we say it? And that's why I felt led for us to go into this study this fall. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Now, witness is a common emphasis in the Gospel of John and also the letters of John. The term witness is used nine times in this short little letter, 1st John, just alone. And John wrote his gospel in order to give everyone that read it an opportunity to believe in Jesus, to be saved from their sins through faith in Jesus. In John 20, 30 and 31, some of you kind of know these verses, John declares his reason for why he wrote the gospel of John. He said, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of many disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written in, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And now, almost 60 years after he became Jesus' disciple, John is still bearing witness to the only Savior of the world. Do you really believe that this morning? That there is only one Savior? You know, There are people lot that are waffling on this. There are Christians that are saying... Now, there may be other paths. There may be other ways. This may not be the only way. But the Bible declares emphatically, Jesus is the only way of salvation. And we need to come to terms with that. We need to come to the confidence in our own belief system that Jesus is the only way for people to be saved today. And if we don't believe that, that's where I want you to begin. That's where I want you to think this through. Don't buy all this other stuff that's floating around today that says, many paths will all get you there. As long as you're sincere, it doesn't matter. John is absolutely convinced in his writing, there is one way. And he was there the night that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He heard that right from the Lord's mouth himself. So let's read together the opening words of John's first letter, only the first four verses of 1 John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. What has been your experience of Jesus Christ so far in your life? How did you first learn about Him? What have you learned and experienced about Him in the meantime, you know, from that moment until now? See, John had been fortunate that he and the other disciples knew Jesus personally. They, they knew him they could walk up to him and shake his hand and hug him you know they just experience life with him. They heard him speak they saw him with their own eyes they touched him they traveled with him. they ate their meals with him. they saw Jesus in every conceivable situation and Jesus had changed their lives. Jesus changed all of their lives. They were no longer fishermen or farmers or tax collectors. Now they identified themselves as followers of Jesus. And Jesus' presence in their lives made a huge difference in how they lived them. Jesus' presence made a huge difference in the whole world. Because as you read the story of Jesus in the four Gospels, you see thousands upon thousands of people coming to Jesus, wanting his teaching, wanting his healing, wanting him to change something about them that that was the problem, a struggle in their life. Mark's Gospel tells us how thousands upon thousands were coming to Jesus. And in the sixth chapter, it tells us, verse 56, that everyone who touched him was healed. There were no exceptions. Anybody that could get to Jesus, Jesus changed their lives. The only difference was those who wouldn't go, those who who wouldn't touch him, those who wouldn't receive what he had to offer. Many lives were being changed day after day as long as their hearts were open to Jesus and his healing touch. And like John, like so many others, since those who personally saw him, we too have met Jesus. We've experienced Jesus' touch, haven't we? Like John and the other disciples, we too are witnesses. And we may not have personally seen or touched or heard Jesus, but we are disciples of Jesus who have been personally touched by Him. And we have been personally touched by His power, by by His grace. You haven't reached out and hugged Jesus yet, but someday you will. You haven't heard His voice Yet, but someday we'll. you haven't seen him face to face. But John promises one day we will see him face to face. And we will be known, uh, just as uh, we will know him just as he knows us. And what a glorious day that will be. Jesus' incarnation has made a difference in our lives. He has changed our lives personally, individually. And while he came to this earth, he changed everything about this world, and gave us a hope for the future. And so, like John, we must testify to what we have experienced through Jesus' power, love, and grace. Now, John and his brother James were witnesses for Jesus, these two brothers. There were also Peter and Andrew, another set of brothers that were his disciples. And he changed James and John's lives. And this is meaningful to me because I have a brother, his name is James, my name is John, and we were named that intentionally by my parents. And James was the older brother in both cases. My brother is five years older than me. The only difference is that I spell my name J-O-N instead of J-O-H-N, and I, I didn't have anything to do with that. It was kind of thrust upon me, this is how you just spell your name. okay? While I was visiting uh, my dad this week, we uh, had him over to where we were staying Friday evening. We had dinner. And he brought along this great big envelope of stuff in a bag that was all this uh, kind of, uh, what, do we, what do we call it, nostalgia? <laughs> all the things my mom had collected through the years. She passed six years ago, but Dad's still hang on to this stuff. And if anybody comes by, he wants to go through it again with them. So we're leafing through all this stuff. We came across this letter I had forgotten about completely. It was a letter that my brother James, Jim, wrote to me when I was just going into high school. He was a first-year college student, and he had gone down to Bloomington, Indiana, to Indiana University, and he wrote to me, and I I had forgotten all about this letter, and I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, I don't even remember him saying this stuff, but I am so, so thankful he did it. It must have must have helped me in some way, and I wanted to share part of it with you today. Because my brother, who could no longer be in my life every day, wrote back thinking, what can I say to my brother? What words of wisdom can I give him? And he rarely does something like this. This is what he wrote. Dear John, how's my best buddy? How's the rehearsal going? How's the soccer team? Frankly, I'm writing this letter to tell you something. To tell you to stay a strong Christian. And that in a few years, those things that seem so important now, like clothes and how your friends think about you and everything else that really isn't important, aren't very important at all. Popularity and going along with the crowd are shallow. They, the kids, don't notice you as much as you do what they do as when you do what's right. And in the long run, they like you more than the guy with all the dirty jokes. I don't remember telling you dirty jokes, but he wrote this stuff. He says, get what you need for the future, like good friends and an education. All the other stuff is really kind of silly. I know you're going to have the most fun time of your life in high school, and I hope you do, but stay humble and clean-spirited, too. The best things are always worth working for. You're the kind of brother every brother wants, and I just don't want you to be changed by the gang. Three years from now, there will be a new gang, and then four years, there will be another new gang. What matters is you and God together. And then he says, sorry, you're the preacher. I lost my head. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he said finally, when you learn how to hit the ball, come down and we'll tackle the front nine down here. So that's my brother. But when I read that, it made me realize how powerful those words were to my life. And as a 14-year-old, I don't remember that letter but he is reaching back to me and saying these are the things that you'll realize someday are important in your life. This is what John is doing as he writes this letter. He knew the churches personally that he was writing to and in the second and third letter he's addressing individuals in those letters saying, you know, this is something you need to watch out for. This is something you need to be concerned about. Remember this guy. Remember the problems he caused and he's very specific as he gets to the second and third letters. And so this is John writing back to people that he knew very, very well. Like my brother, John was writing these letters because he saw the churches slipping away from their mission. There was a problem in the church, there was a heresy that was called Gnosticism. Have you ever heard of it before? It's G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M, like this. And it's built off of a little Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge, but not like knowledge you get from a textbook or you get in a classroom but knowledge that is a spiritual knowledge, kind of a mysterious knowledge, a knowledge that is kind of granted to some people, but not to most people. And the Gnostics believed there was a type of knowledge that you could get that would be a mysterious spiritual knowledge, and that would be the thing that would save you. And this philosophy was starting to really spread its wings and get a lot of people in it, and they were Christians being sucked into that, and and brought into that, and they were kind of merging their Christian beliefs with this other doctrine, this other philosophy called Gnosticism. Gnosticism created serious conflict and confusion in the churches of Christ. It broke up churches. It, it stopped the mission of Christ in some places, and John, seeing the front end of this, realizes where this is going, and he's wanting to stop it in its tracks. Gnostics taught a dualistic view of, of the world. There's two levels of life, two planes. There's the physical plane where we live, where we eat, we breathe, we sleep, we go to work, all that kind of stuff. And that, in the Gnostic view, is a very evil place, just, just rampantly evil, just bad. You just try to you know get through that. But above that was this spiritual plane of, of goodness and truth and righteousness. And the Gnostic would strive to get this knowledge and and move, you know, in his mind and in his, his uh, spirit into this other realm. But because of this dualistic way of looking at it, some of them said, doesn't matter what you do down here. You live any way you want because it doesn't affect your spirit. So they would be very, very sensual, uh, you know, very involved in, in immoral things and say it doesn't matter because my mind is still pure. What a crazy thing. No wonder people buy that. No wonder people would go for that. You could sell that, couldn't you? And they did. And others said, well, because everything evil is down here in the physical, let's avoid all that. Let's do as little as we have to do. We don't want to even touch that. We don't want to be part of that because it's so bad. Let's just live up here above all of that stuff. And so they just kind of separated themselves from society and they live out kind of like a monk somewhere, you know, and not be a part of that. And this this also was appealing to some people that this by nature kind of wanted to be good, kind of wanted to be above everybody else, and it, it appealed to that. So this stuff was selling really well. This was the problem that John is confronting. And he's wanting to bring them back to the truth. And what was a real issue for the Gnostic Christian was Jesus. Because the gospel says that Jesus came and became a man. He came to earth, Son of God. He became a man. He took on human flesh. He took on a physical body. He became a man, fully human. They just couldn't could buy that at all because that would make Jesus evil. Jesus just can't be evil. And and you know, so what do you do with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? Because this is the This is the heart of the gospel that Jesus gave his life for us, that Jesus died. He shed his blood. He physically died. And then he physically rose by his own power from the grave. And the Gnostics would just say, That's not right. That's not true. And they stripped away the power of the gospel because Jesus, the Son of God, could never have become a man. He may have seemed to be a man, he may have been a phantom. He may have been something that people thought they were envisioning and hallucinating or, or whatever, but he never became a man, and he never went to the cross, and he never died for us like that. He never shed his blood. You see, it stripped away the whole story if you bought this philosophy. To John, the cross of Jesus Christ was pivotal to our salvation because it was at the cross that Jesus physically and literally gave his life so that we could go free. It is crucial that a fully human Jesus gave up his physical life and then three days later later, rose bodily from that grave to prove his divine power over death and sin and hell. 1 John was written largely to protect the churches from these false ideas and doctrines which were gaining prominence in the Greco-Roman culture. Gnosticism was a philosophical challenge to John's church, to John's age. But we have our challenges too, don't we? We have some challenges that are just as appealing. Some of them are similar to this. There's materialism. What a challenge to the church today that you can be happy by having more stuff. That you can be successful, that you can be popular, that you can be uh, satisfied through things, or hedonism. You know, satisfy what you want, satisfy your sensuality, satisfy your desires, and this is definitely a message that's being preached today, it's being, you know, pushed in our society today. Or, or secular humanism and another way of looking at things and keeping God out of the whole equation and you're only answerable to yourself and you can be your own God and you know a New Age movement and all the different things that would be part of of kind of an approach a philosophy that's being sold. These are the the challenges to the church today. And in a similar way, if John was here, he'd write a letter to say, "Watch out for this because this strips away the power of the gospel." This strips away what Jesus has done for us. And as I said, Gnosis means to know. The Gnosis Gnostics thought that they had special knowledge. John wrote to correct that knowledge. To say, you don't know anything. <laughs> you don't know. You're just you know, full of pride to think that you know something and that you're going to be saved by this special knowledge that somebody has granted you. Here's what you really need to know. That Jesus came in the flesh. We saw him. We heard him. We touched him. We were in his life and he was in ours. We spent three years with him. We watched him die. We watched him after he came back from the grave. We saw him ascended to heaven. All the eyewitness things that John could bring to bear in this, as a witness of Christ, he starts his letter with that. Because he's confronting the biggest challenge the church had seen to date. Uh, Jesus calls us to be witnesses, not just to witness. We'll make a a big distinction here this morning. Christians often talk about witnessing for Christ. I've talked about witnessing for Christ. But when you read the New Testament, witness is not a verb. Witness is a noun. There's a difference. You can be a witness. You can bear witness, but you can't witness, really, not not in in the word that's used in the the Greek New Testament. It's a noun, not a verb. Acts 1.8 gives us the key to this. Jesus is saying to his disciples, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. Various forms of this word "witness" occur 42 times in the in the New Testament, but not one of those 42 times is to witness. It's always about being a witness. And I want us to kind of grab onto that this morning, in this this opening of our study of First John, that we are called to be something, not just to do something. Jesus said in Matthew 5.13, you are the salt of the earth, didn't he? Matthew 5.14, he says, you are the light of the world. This is being salt, being light in the world. And as we are like that city that's up on a hill, and you can't hide it once it's up there. And as you take a light out, and you don't hide it under some basket somewhere, but you put it up so it can give light across the room. So Christians are supposed to put themselves out there in a in a prominent way in order to be the witness that brings people to Jesus Christ. Many of us have come to faith in Christ because we first saw him living in someone that we know. We just watched them. We 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 heard what they said, we saw their love, we saw their character, we saw you know the way they interacted with people, we heard what they said about Jesus. And we wanted to know more. And so we started hanging around them a little bit more. We started listening. We maybe started asking them different questions. And through their personal example, we came to know Christ. Now it is our turn to be witnesses in someone else's life. Opportunities are everywhere as we go through our daily lives. Are we remembering our calling? Are we remembering that we are salt and light and we are to be witnesses in this world? This past week, I read on the Gospel for Asia website about a pastor over in India. And uh, he was a young man. He was asking God to show him where to serve, where to to do something for him. And God kept impressing upon him the worst part of of the world that he knew about. It was a a slum area. Uh, There were children just running through this kind of a garbage heap, trying to get something to eat. They had nobody taking care of them. He says it was an awful place. You didn't even want to walk through this place. It was so bad. And there were people living there. And God kept saying, that's where I want you to be a witness. And uh, Pastor Nitya is his name. And Pastor Nitya kept saying, God, you know, there are other places. (laughs) Other places than that. People need you everywhere. Now, this is where you need to go. And he ended up moving next door to this slum. And he goes in there every day. And he serves the needs of the people there. The children there. The adults have nowhere else to go. The disease, there's all kinds of problems in that area, of course. People are living in extreme poverty and filth and and all the social tension that goes along with that. Nobody wants them. They're the untouchables. All of that. But he has a heart to show God's love to the children living there and uh, rescuing them even from the abuse that's going on in their lives. To some, he says, these children are worthless. But to me, they're God's creation. And so I share Jesus with them. John was a witness for Jesus to his world. He had experienced Jesus' power and love firsthand. And he wanted others to experience what he had experienced in Jesus' We're not eyewitnesses like John, but we are witnesses to what Jesus has done in our lives, in yours and mine. You don't have to tell somebody else's story, but you're supposed to tell your story. You can't uh, say I'm an eyewitness, but you can say this is what Jesus did for me. This is what he did to change my life. This is how my life has become better. And this is the hope, this is the confidence I have in him now, even for eternity. God is counting on us to be His light in this dark world, to be His love in this hateful, lost world. And it's up to us whether we will do that. I want to pray for me, I want to pray for you this morning as we close. As we start this study together, uh, that we will understand specifically, personally, what God wants us to do. It's not about just New Hope Church not about the churches of this area. It's about you or me. It's about where we work, where we live. People that we are related to. People that we're already friends with. People that we're already enemies with. I don't know. I don't know where God's going to send you. But I hope you'll be seeking and praying and asking God. And maybe God will give you a vision like Pastor Nietzsche. Maybe God will give you a vision like John maybe be some other vision of what he wants you to do. But let me pray for all of us now as we close. Father, I thank you that you are a God who loves. You love every man, woman, and child. You love every person, no matter how unlovely and unlovable they may be to us. Lord, some of these people, um, we can't imagine ever being around or talking to living next door to spending time with but I pray just now as we begin this series that our hearts would be open we would not be closed off we would not be sealed off from any anything you would lay in our hearts That we would not predict or uh, try to force some vision upon our lives, but that we would be ready to pray as Pastor Nietzsche did. Lord, just show me where where I need to serve you. Show me the people that you love that I have yet to show love to. Maybe it's somebody close by. Maybe it's somewhere we need to go. Maybe it's people we can imagine loving and others that we can't imagine loving. We open our hearts to you. And we ask that you would make us the people of God, the witnesses that you want us to be. Show your love, give your light, spread the salt that you can through us, Lord, as we yield ourselves to you. I pray for those who are here today, maybe for the first time. Pray for them personally, Lord, right now, even though I don't know their names, that you would speak to their heart today. That you would show them how to use their talents, use their gifts, for you, and may your love just flow out of their lives into the people around them. Bless us all now as we seek you, seek your heart, in Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, would you?